Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Welcome back to another episode of Bleacher Blums. You are hanging out in the bleachers with myself, Jeff Blum, 14-year Major League veteran and current color commentator for the Houston Astros, and things have been going very good for the Houston Astros. And that's part of what uh, St. Arnold's going to have on tap for us on this podcast is a little bit of Astros talk just because I feel like talking about the best team in baseball. And we are going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, sticky situations that are happening because of the sticky substance and because of Major League Baseball instituting rules in the middle of the season. And my co-host out there on the left coast is David Tuttle. You played college baseball. You played for Team USA. You played 10 years in the minor leagues, were traded several times. You've got a great deal of baseball experience. But most importantly, I am just, I am so curious to see how you are actually doing on this fine afternoon as we record this episode of Bleacher Blums. Blarn, always good to be with you, man. And uh, yeah, you always forget to say that not the resume, really. We just became friends and started talking and uh, became the Bleacher Blums podcast. So uh, always good to be with you. Everything's going great, man. I'm in uh, vacation mode. We're leaving on vacation tomorrow and we're not coming back till after the 4th of July. But uh, always good to be with you. You know, I told you uh, off air here, it's about 71 degrees out here in California. So uh, <laughs> I know you guys are dealing with some other weather, but uh, yeah, everything's going great. I, I will dispute uh, whether the Astros are the best team in baseball, but we can do that as the podcast moves along. Nice. Yeah, we will talk about Carl Nassib, all right, uh, too, because he has come out as, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a big shock nowadays that uh, athletes are going to express their sexuality. I think the clubhouse uh, is an open forum, and Tuttle and I have talked about this in the past when racial relations were coming up, and We'll have some comments about uh, Carl Nassib coming out. Uh, maybe a couple of questions from our producer, Mark, who did a, who is doing a great job on our podcast, making us sound good and cutting and editing and firing in quotes and sound effects whenever necessary. He's also in charge of our swag. So if you go to bleacherblums.com uh, and check it out, you can get in our mailbag and you can send us requests for topics. You can send us questions. You can send us rebuttals. Uh, have a good time doing that, but also check out the swag because Mark is a proprietor of Crush City tees.com that also does a good job with getting out Bleacher Blum swag to a lot of fans out there who are listening. Please go on your favorite uh, podcast platform and make sure you subscribe, download, share the information, share it with friends because that does us wonders as far as getting these podcasts out frequently and at the highest quality that we possibly can. Uh, you can reach Tuttle on Twitter at RealDavidTuttle and you can reach myself, Blummer, at Blummer27 on Twitter also. And of course, you can go to BlueWirePods.com because that is the Blue Wire Podcast Network we are a part of. I think we've gotten all the business out of the way. Tuttle, do you want to get things started for us? Because other than you sitting in a car currently in 71 degrees and listening to, to my voice, you are also have the, the fine hum of air conditioning behind you, which everybody in Houston really enjoys the fact that you're embracing that free on attitude. Yeah, yeah. Uh- I'm, I'm not helping California's environment uh, Shh, as we, won't we currently say speak. Hey, uh, so what the new shirt, Hot Gurriel Summer. I've seen that shirt. I don't have one of those. I don't know if I'll be wearing that around, but uh, that's- Seems the, appropriate. Yeah, it's a cool <laughs> cool new shirt going uh, from uh, Crush City Tees. So uh, what we were talking about before is that, uh, you know, the NBA has their uh, marijuana testing and they always announce when it is. All right, hey, February 13th, we're going to have our marijuana testing 
and uh, everybody's prepped for it. And I feel like we talked about last time, you know, we don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about the uh, sticky substances, but they, they've kind of given everybody a warning and they've said, this is when we're going to test and this is what's happening. And, you know, some guys, you know, have stopped using the substances earlier. But again, there's no reason to implement this rule mid-season. And, you know, last night with Joe Girardi and Max Scherzer, we definitely saw some animosity coming out here mid-season and we're not really sure how to move forward. What, what did you think about that whole situation? Well, you know, just to begin with, with you, you know, you bringing up the fact that, you know, the NBA gives you a heads up when you're getting marijuana tested. So obviously guys can prepare for that. And, you know, uh, I think that, you know, recreational drug testing is, is funny in a sense that, you know, these guys are coping with playing at such a high level that uh, it's kind of silly to test for that anyways. But then you add in the fact that you're instituting a midseason rule and you are now saying that umpires are going to physically check players. So like Max Scherzer said after the game, he said, I'd be an idiot to go out there with anything because no pitcher, I believe, wants to be the poster child of the first guy to get caught you know, using a foreign substance. I think all of these pitchers maybe have the mindset of, I'm not going to use anything. We're going to see how this unfolds. Hopefully nobody gets hurt. And then we can have the discussion with Major League Baseball and figure out that there does need to be some kind of universal substance instituted to allow these guys to go out and pitch because he was doing it the appropriate way. He was using, it was a cool night in Philadelphia, 66 degrees. The only perspiration he had was on his head So he reached under his hat every once in a while to get a little tackiness because he got tired of licking the rosin off of his fingers and ingesting it, which I don't blame him because rosin is not a tasty item to have in your mouth on a consistent basis. So he was trying to, you know, figure out with between perspiration in his hair and the rosin on the mound behind him, he was trying to figure out how to get a grip and he was being checked in between innings and you could see he was frustrated with the fact that he had to do that. And then he went back out on the mound and Joe Girardi proceeded to ask the umpires to check him mid mid inning, which I think is it, it was in poor taste. Um, I don't know if Joe Girardi was trying to send a message, but could you have picked a worse guy to go out there and check for a second time and see if he has a substance? Because the reaction from Max Scherzer is exactly what I expected from a guy like Max Scherzer is for him to be pissed. You know, he throws his glove and his hat on the ground. He proceeds to take his entire belt off and makes a mockery of the situation. Davey Martinez, the manager for the Washington Nationals, comes out and airs out uh, the umpires and Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi all of a sudden wants to fight. So Joe Girardi really put himself in a bad light, I feel. And it was extremely frustrating to see that unfold. And I think Major League Baseball, in seeing some of these situations, has got to understand that this is not going to go the way I think they feel it should be going. And I'm just not sure how this is going to unfold. You know, I don't think there's going to be any repercussions for a guy like Max Scherzer, who was kind of put under the microscope in this situation because Joe Girardi saw something out of the ordinary. What I thought was interesting is that Joe Girardi eventually got ejected. And I'm kind of curious to see if he ends up getting suspended, if he ends up getting fined, because now there's going to be precedent. The first day this rule is instituted, we had a situation where the manager actually interjected himself into the situation. And that's where I think Major League Baseball now is going to have to try and figure out what the precedent is. Do we fine him? Do we suspend him? Because the pace of play is always going to be a question. I know in watching our Astros games, they did a very good job of checking both pitchers coming off the mound every other inning as far as starters were concerned. They checked the uh, relief pitchers when they came in before they started their inning. And when the closers in that ninth ninth inning came in, they actually checked them 
before the inning to make sure that uh, they weren't using anything because obviously when the game ends, the game is over and it's an official game and you can't check anybody or reject anybody after that point. So there's certain rules and regulations set in place to take care of this in-game. But I thought at least in the in the Astros-Orioles series, they have handled it extremely well and guys were conducive to that fact. I also thought it was kind of interesting in a couple of shots that we had, Bill Murphy, one of the uh, pitching coaches for the Houston Astros, uh, went out to the mound and went out to the uh, inspections and just kind of lingered around the outside of of the uh, umpires and the player. And for me personally, I thought that was a brilliant idea just to have another body, another set of ears, another person in there listening to the conversation and making sure that that pitcher has the support that he needs. It's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds from this point because I think we've got some of the uh, the chicanery and some of the clown act and some of the mockery out of the situation. And now we can hopefully move on and and get along with baseball. But I think that there has to be a call between the union and uh, Rob Manfred to try and figure out how we can regulate this a little bit. Because the pitch before Max Scherzer was asked to be checked mid-inning was a 95-mile-an-hour fastball at bombs. The third base uh, men for the Phillies almost hit him in the head. So it's kind of interesting, the timing in that entire situation. But it's just a shame that pitchers are under this kind of scrutiny right now. And for me personally, I think it's it, it's it's detrimental to the game because now our focus is on the drama of pitchers being checked. I think it's the drama of, ooh, is his spin rate down? Where I could care less. I want to go out and watch baseball. And I also want to talk about guys who are 25 years and younger who are on the home run leaderboards, who are leading in RBIs, the Vladimir Guerrero Juniors, the Ronald Acuna Juniors, the Wander Francos. I mean, Wander Franco for the Tampa Bay Rays made a splash last night as the number one prospect in all of baseball, hitting a home run for the Tampa Bays in his debut. And we're talking about Max Scherzer and Sergio Romo dropping their pants. And I think that's, you know, where baseball has kind of gone awry as far as where where is where is the idea of promoting the game of baseball? And this is not getting it done for me. What do you think, Tuttle? Um you know, I think we've said this before, and it's just we're focused on the wrong thing. What are we doing, as we say? What are we talking about? Again, I think last night was a great example with uh, you already brought up with uh, the rosin and then the saliva and the sweat. and You get tired of licking your hand. You're trying to come up with this items to get a good grip on the baseball, which is all these guys are trying to do. Cy Young was around and Abner Doubleday invented baseball. There's a rosin bag on the back of the mound. Um, kind of, you know, sub- supporting the fact that it's really important to have a grip on the baseball when you're throwing at 100 miles an hour towards the plate. That's actually a great point. You know, the rosin is back there for a reason to get a grip on the baseball. So since the invention of baseball, the game, they have used rosin to find a way to get a grip. And, you know, even going back that far, there were guys that would throw in, you know, massive chaws into their lip and then lick their fingers to get the tobacco on there to create a little bit of tackiness, too. So it has happened a long time. The one thing that has not evolved is the pitcher's ability to get a grip because the baseball is constantly changing. But, you know, I love the fact that you brought up, you know, this is what this is the negative impact of this is now going to be the immediate knee jerk assumption that pitchers are all using it. And I don't think that's fair to a lot of guys because all of a sudden you're going to see maybe the shape of their pitch changes a little bit or maybe the break isn't as great. You know, it, it drives me crazy that they are going to immediately assume because Major League Baseball instituted a rule in midseason that, oh my gosh, did you see that? That guy's spin rate was low. 
And the assumption is going to be that he used as opposed to the fact that maybe he just didn't have the break that day. Pitchers, you can attest to this, Tuttle. There are days where you show up and you just don't have the breaking ball. You just don't have the sink on your sinker and you're going to have to fight through that and make the adjustment to your repertoire as far as how you go get guys out. Or you're going to be, you know, nursing a shoulder injury or an elbow injury that you're trying to fight through and you're not going to be able to create the snap that you want. Baseball is a long season and to immediately assume that it's sticky stuff that makes a pitcher better is, is beyond me. I don't like the assumptions. I like the fact that these guys are good enough to go out there and pitch, and they're trying their best to play within the new rules. This will get us off the sticky subject. I mean, we've been talking about this third podcast in a row. Every pitcher is trying to grip the ball. They all do it differently. And how do we draw the line of what's cheating and what isn't? And to your point, uh, ultimately... But I'm saying when that thing is knuckling or when it's moving in a certain way that it's not supposed to move is different than having a little bit lower of a spin rate. Honestly, I mean, that's really what we're talking about. And all these guys are going to get deemed pitchers. I said this last time as well. Barry Bonds was the greatest baseball player in the game even before he took steroids. He took steroids. And, you know, as somebody said, if he had hit 53 home runs, they would have been like, all right, hey, 53 home runs is pretty good. The fact that he hit 73, you know, just kind of exposed the, uh, you know, the height of, 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 of his ability <laughs> when he enhanced that. And I said, Garrett Cole and Verlander and Scherzer and these guys, they're still going to be the best pitchers in the game. The only thing that's less asinine is, you know, I guess us continuing to talk about till we're, you know, over and over and over and over. <laughs> Yeah, we've made our opinions pretty clear on the sticky stuff, and we would love to get past this. It's just Major League Baseball, again, rearing its ugly head and sticking it in there and, and making an issue out of something that guys were just dealing with. I know that uh, Chris Bryant has come out recently and had his comments saying that, get rid of it all, but you're going to have varying opinions across baseball. That's the beauty of baseball for me is actually that you're able to have the conversations as often as you want to, and you can argue for your team, you can argue against your team. Uh, you can argue for a player on why he's the best or why he isn't the best. And that's what makes baseball great. And that's what makes fans great. And I tell you what, down here in Houston, fans are absolutely rabid with the fact that the Astros have moved their way into the number one spot, not just in the American League West, finally, finally overcoming the Oakland Athletics because they have played, I think, 95 games at home already this season. And they finally got on the road and lost two out of three in New York. Uh, currently they're down in Texas where they lost a game. So they faltered a little bit. And with the Astros on a nine game winning streak have actually taken over the American league West by one game. And they are actually the Tuttle's going to love this because the giants have been playing so well, but the best record in baseball belongs to the Houston Astros and they've done it with offense. They've done it by protecting their bullpen because their starting pitching has been absolutely lights out through this stretch where guys are going six-plus innings. They got Lance McCullers Jr. off the injured list. They got Jake Odorizzi off the injured list. Christian Javier has been dealing out of the bullpen. These guys have set up and put themselves in a great spot to go out there and continue to score runs. And there's a number that I absolutely love. And I know if you watch our broadcast, uh, you hear it quite a bit. But the Astros have a run differential, which is best in Major League Baseball right now. They are a, a plus 122. And what that tells you is that these guys, they go out and pitch, they suppress opposing offenses and runs, and then they go out and hammer the baseball and put up big run totals. But Tuttle, because my name is on this podcast and because I'm an Astro faithful, the Astros are the best team in baseball, overcoming your San Francisco Giants. 
How you doing, man? So let's get the numbers right, which <laughs> currently they are. I say this all the time. When you play 162 games, it's really, you know, 75, 80 games in the season. It's really tough to say who the best team in baseball is. Would you not agree with that? No, I completely do. And that's what the fun part about it is, is that the ebbs and flows throughout the course of a season is, is awesome. And it's kind of funny coming off a season last year where they only played 60 games to look at it at 75 games and say they're the best team in baseball, and then you look at the rest of the schedule, yeah, there's there's a pretty long way to go before the end of this thing. One of the things I noticed out here in the National League West, you have the Dodgers, Padres, and Giants, and you know, hopefully by the time the World Series rolls around, if everything stays the way it is, if the Astros are playing one of those teams in the World Series, they'll be happy that they all had to play each other. Because I'm looking ahead at the schedule. In the last 30 days of the season, the Giants have to play both the Padres and the Dodgers about 17 times. So I think to your point, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Dodgers, Padres, and Giants might be battle-tested, but sometimes that battle-testing coming down the end of the season is going to, uh, you know, is going to make it tough on, on one of the National League teams winning it all. And I think to your point about the Astros and the A's, I mean, if the Astros can get any help in that bullpen, I know Presley's been throwing really well. I mean, you know, you got to ride these waves as long as you can. Rays had won, what, 16, 17 games in a row, and now they're on a losing streak of seven. I mean, it's just, it's just nature of the game. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you've got bragging rights right now. You can put that record up against anybody in baseball and say the Astros are the best, and uh, you're factually true. And, you know, as Astros fans know, you're, they're, just hoping you're, they're just hoping you're right. <laughs> Take the crown right now. Pre-All-Star break, the Astros are the best team in baseball. Go for it. I'll give it to you. All right. I have a confession to make. I may have gotten a little ex- too excited, maybe peaked a little bit too soon because our producer, Mark, just uh, texted me and said that freaking Tuttle's going to run with this one. Whose side are you on, Mark? I thought you were an Astro fan. So what, what he just texted me was the San Francisco Giants are 47 and 26 right now. They are leading the National League West. The Astros are currently 45 and 28, leading the American League West. The winning percentage for the Astros, 616. The winning percentage for the Giants is 644. Tuttle, the Giants are the best team in baseball. Change. I can't believe you were, you were, mis- you were using <laughs> false facts to. Uh, the, uh, to write a false narrative here on the pod, on the podcast. It's disappointing. I thought I had, I thought you and I had the utmost trust and faith in each other. So. <laughs> no, I'm, t- I'm telling you now, I'm, t- I'm telling you now that it's a long season. So pace yourself. Okay, man, things can change. Hey, let me say something that I forgot to mention earlier. I watched the NBA <laughs> last night, but the last 90 seconds of the game took 33 minutes of television, television watching time. And I will never, and you should go watch this replay. I will never agree with the fact that, they did the super slow-mo replay where Booker's dribbling and Beverly hit the ball and they watched the ball come off of Beverly's hand and off Booker's little pinky and go out of bounds and they gave the ball to the Clippers. And it's like, if you watch everything slow-mo, Booker never would have lost oh. the ball if Beverly didn't hit it. And Beverly hit it that direction and that's the way the ball went out. But they go slow-mo. I mean, it, it is the most asinine use of replay i've ever seen like the whole point you know we watch soccer and they're offside you want to get it right this is not getting it right like you can watch that a hundred times and know that he would never have lost the ball if the guy not hit hit it out so it's one thing if he hit it out off his shin so 
Anyway, oh, yeah. I had to get that into the podcast somehow because no. I was yelling at the TV. So this is my outlet. Well, didn't I think that happened in the NCAA uh, March Madness a couple of years ago where they did that same thing where they broke it down frame by frame where in real time, the ref probably made the appropriate call. But when you do break it down frame by frame, you are going to catch that, you know, that fingernail that touches the basketball before it goes out or that pant leg as it goes out of bounds. And then it could change the course of the game. That kind of goes with, you know, the, the issue with replay for me in Major League Baseball is when a guy steals second base or he's sliding into a bag and they're safe initially, but they overslide or lose contact with the bag. And then you can, you know, tag the guy again. And it's not necessarily the great play that gets them. It's the fact that the guy overran the bag and his foot comes off and then you get the out. So it's, you know, it, 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 those are those kind of gray areas in replay where I wish they could reevaluate it a little bit and and correct some of those things because that does i think what you're trying to say is it's kind of ticky tack tack but it is it the right call even you know what i mean like i said if you're watching something like you can see where the guy's you know foot hits the base you know first base like you know is different because you know mm-hmm. the ball gets there you see what's but it, you're right you know that the ncaa game with virginia i believe when virginia either won or lost on a play like that it just doesn't make sense to me because i don't think i mean the whole point of replay isn't to get, it's not the spirit of the rule. It's to get the call right. And I think there are plenty of people that could say, yep, they got the call right. But if you and I were playing basketball on the playground is the way I like to look at it, right? Is that a catch or isn't it a catch? Or, oh, I hit the ball out of bounds, you know? It's one thing, like I said, if it hits your leg or hits your shorts. But if I'm still holding on to the ball, then you hit it that way. Anyway, I could go down, I could go mm-hmm. down on this, you know, this topic for a while. It just, it just wasn't right. It didn't sit well in that last like I said, last 90 se- there was about three calls like that. The last 90 seconds of the game, they kept doing the, all right, let's check replay. And it took 33 minutes of TV time. And the game ended with the Suns winning on a pretty exciting play. But man, what, I mean, oh. what, what are we doing? That's, I guess, our question all the time. What are we doing? So good stuff on the Major League Baseball situation. Good stuff on NBA replay, Tuttle. We have now got to take a break for a sponsor. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. And we're back. And I think, Tuttle, you've got some information uh, kind of, it's maybe not shocking news to us, but there is some big news uh, surrounding the NFL right now. Why don't you take it away, man? I mean, a locker room, in my opinion, a sports locker room especially, is one of the most open, connected, together uh, places you can be. And it's super supportive. And I guess without kind of getting too much in the weeds, I always say, look, if you're 
if you're a professional baseball player and you can play baseball, then you're accepted in that locker room, especially if you're running the book in the same direction as everybody else. I'm assuming the same is, uh, is applicable to football and basketball. Like if you can play basketball, um, you know, you're going to be on the team and it doesn't really matter. And I think, so it should be no shock to know that, oh my gosh, you know, there's gay football players or gay baseball players. Like, I mean, it doesn't really hit my radar anything other than, you know, this is normal and this is what it should be. And I do realize that uh, it might seem a little out of the norm for many, but uh, I think this isn't a shock. And what, what, what were your thoughts on that, Plummer? No, I, you know what? I can't imagine being in that position because, yes, being in the clubhouse, we are, we are obviously wide open and have one objective, or at least we should have one objective on going out and winning primarily. You know, you played college baseball. I played college baseball. Uh, we both played professional baseball for a long time. I was in the major leagues for 14 years with six different teams. And if you don't even count some of the roster moves, you know, six times 25 is a large number of teammates to have. And I don't know if anybody was gay on any of the teams I played. And I don't, to be honest, I don't know how I would react. I probably would have reacted like, hey, man, if you need anything, let me know. How do we work through this? How do we keep the clubhouse intact so nobody alienates anybody and we can still go out and compete on the field? And I think that's kind of what you're getting to. Um, because when, as a player, you go out to play to win the game. And then I think about it as a broadcaster, now me being on the media side and hearing these things and understanding why it's a news story. You know, I think it was, was it Michael Sam? There was somebody that got drafted by the St. Louis Rams, you know, years back that was openly gay. I'm not sure if he ever made it onto an NFL roster, but, you know, he might have been the first openly gay guy to get drafted. And, you know, everybody applauded the fact that the St. Louis Rams did that. But now being on the media side and trying to understand the story that that is revolving around Carl Nassib, it's not something that if I'm broadcasting a game and Carl Nassib is on the Las Vegas Raiders and he tackles somebody, guess what I'm going to say? I'm going to say Carl Nassib made a great play off the end and tackled uh, you know the Tom Brady for a sack of six yards. I'm not going to. I could care less, you know, what his sexuality is and. You know, hopefully he gets the support he needs within that cl- in that clubhouse or that locker room, and uh, hopefully the community surrounds around him and just kind of supports him. And maybe there's some future athletes out there that uh, are kind of questioning, you know, should I go out go out and play? Should I openly express, you know, who I am ultimately? And I think Carl Nassib is kind of tearing down some of those walls, so to speak, and good for him. Um, what people used to say all the time about politics, right? Like, hey, you know, Michael Jordan was very uh distinctly uh, absent from making strong opinions about politics or who he voted for for president or his thoughts on race relations. You know, it was more about, hey, I'm going to win championships and this is what I'm here for. And I think that's how I've always approached it. Right. You have these silos in your life. Right. We talk about our families a little bit, but not, you know, on the podcast, it's a little bit different. But, you know, on the broadcast and, you know, what you're doing personally is a little bit different. Some people want to know about it. Some people don't. But really, you're there to do a job and that's what that's, you know, kind of the way it should be. And so sometimes, you know, thinking about the flip side of it is like, honestly, I don't really care whether Carl Nassib is gay or not. Right. I don't care what his personal uh, uh, kind of beliefs and connections are. Uh, I realize that there is some probably a feeling of necessity. And I know he mentioned something, which is what you said, maybe providing a foundation of support or a belief system for other people that are like him because that has been kind of um, in the background for so long. 
But for me personally, and I think the argument would be, well, you're just you're living a normal life over there and you don't understand what it's like to be me or us. It doesn't matter. I'm open and accepting. But I do tend to think like it doesn't really matter if you voted for Trump or voted for Biden. We still got to throw our fastball. We still still got to hit home runs. And I kind of have the same approach with Carl Nassib. Again, just to reinforce the point, I mean, I think what he did is uh, certainly brave, but uh, also not, you know, probably necessary in our world in the sense that, look, if the guy can play football, he's going to be welcome in that clubhouse and, uh, you know, and more power to him. Yeah, definitely. So best of luck to Carl Nassib. Uh, Best of luck to uh, the NFL as it it starts to uh, get their training camps going and things like that. But I think we're going to do something a little bit different here because we've got our producer Mark on here and he's actually been trolling. Can I say trolling the internet, the interwebs, trying to figure out uh, what fans are asking and what fans are talking about. So I'm going to bring in Mark Ramos real quick to bring some uh, Q&A session here on Bleacher Blums to interact with some of the fans we got out there. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me and letting me be part of this podcast. But the first question is from Lex. Uh, you can find her at LexKiera24. And her question is, how hard was it to get into broadcasting? She works part-time as the Astros tour guide, and she wants to get into the communications department. And she's asking, what advice would you give someone who wants to get into the sports broadcasting industry? That is a phenomenal question. And I get this question a lot because, you know, I don't have the typical background of somebody who went to school to study broadcasting. My, my road to the broadcast booth was via the field and it was via interviews. It was uh, putting myself out there and, and hopefully giving appropriate answers and confronting the negative with the positive when I had to do interviews and uh, keeping a you know, keeping an open mind to when the opportunities arose. And I actually had the opportunity when I was playing in San Diego to host a couple of radio shows down there, which was a lot of fun. So I just kind of threw myself out there as far as opportunities. I really never said no to an opportunity uh, to go speak in an event, to speak on radio, to do a, you know, an impromptu TV uh, interview. So if you're trying to get into broadcasting in that sense, I would say do as much as you can and never turn down the opportunity I know in talking to Julia Morales, there's a lot of hustle involved on the broadcast side, uh, you know, working high school football games or high school baseball games and, and putting yourself out there and just getting as much of your voice out there on tape and getting your getting your face on tape. I don't even know if they use tape anymore, but get your get, get your face and voice digitized and get your get that demo reel going, because the more you do it, the better you're going to be at it and the more the more opportunity you're going to be able to create. And, and you know, there's 20, there's 30 baseball teams, there's 32 NFL teams, there's a ton of NHL, there's all kinds of avenues. And I think now with the internet and streaming and some of these other, other avenues, I think there's plenty of opportunity to kind of get on some of those message boards, apps, and websites to get your resume out there. But uh, the biggest thing for me is to not say no to opportunities. Any opportunity is an opportunity to get your voice out there. So I appreciate that question. And I was just fortunate enough to uh, get the opportunity with the Diamondbacks first and then uh, the Houston Astros, obviously, for the last nine years. I, I am grateful because I love my job and I, I really enjoy it. Tuttle, you got any thoughts? I was just going to say, just to support what you said, Blummer, I mean, obviously, everybody <laughs> has a different path. My brother actually modeled after college. And, you know, there's people that want to get into modeling or acting or you oh, know, you broadcast go. and all this work. I mean, if it's something that you're super passionate about, I know every minor league team that I played for, I wish I played for some more major league teams or any for that matter, but uh, every minor league team, I mean, we had guys that were 
they sold tickets during the off season and then they were like the, the radio guy during the season or they were, you know, they were the usher and then they were the VP of something like concessions. Like, I mean, there's so many different things you can do around ball clubs. As you mentioned, there's NFL teams and NHL teams and minor leagues and all of those that if it's something that you're super passionate about as the Astros tour guide, any opportunity, whether you could move somewhere or um, put a resume together that shows you're interested or do your own, like you said, this day and age, you know, if it's something that you're super passionate about, pursue it, pursue it to the nth degree and you'll make it happen for sure. Good question, Lex. All right. Our next question is from H-Town Wiggy, which you all have probably seen on Twitter. Oh yeah. H-Town Wiggy. H-Town Wiggy. His question is, there are rumors that Verlander may make a late comeback. If that's true, what would the rotation look like from that perspective? Well, it, it's it's kind of been a little not not necessarily a mystery, but it's just kind of been something where you know that it is a long process to come back from Tommy John. I know he's probably working his tail off uh, trying to come back, and I think you know the per, the perspective of him coming back during the season might be a little bit in question just because of the length of the rehab, and you want to make sure that I'm sure Justin wants to make sure that he is strong enough to come back, but. It would probably have to be a scenario where the Astros have run away with the division. They know that they're going to go to the playoffs and their season's going to be extended because I don't think that there's a real rush to get him back in the regular season just because of risking injury. And, you know, the last thing you want is for Justin Verlander to rush back and get hurt again and uh, have to spend another season on the injured list. I think that, you know, in the best interest of Justin Verlander, he's going to make sure that he is 100%. I don't, if, let's say miraculously that he is able to come back. I do not think it would be in the starting rotation. I think it would be some kind of relief role, whether it be, you know, supporting Ryan Presley, you know, setting him up or getting some key hitters late in the game in a high leverage situation. That might be, you know, the dream scenario, but I I don't think that getting into that rotation might be the, the, the way to go because you're going to have to ask him to be healthy and stretched out, which might be a lot to ask. When you're in the playoffs and it's all on the line, I mean, we've seen this before, like guys try to fight through things. That is not the way to rebound from a Tommy John surgery. I mean, it's usually anywhere from 16 to 18 month timetable uh, to be back uh, and ready to go. And I just think those two words scare me. Um, I know it's an, uh, a whole lot of optimism <laughs> from Astros fans, you know, because it'd be fantastic to have them. And I think what you said is great. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? He wouldn't have to be stretched out. He could come in and be a setup guy or come in and close out a game in a key situation. But if he's not healthy or anywhere near close to that, I just, that, that high, those, those two words scare me, high leverage. I mean, you're, you're going to be out there trying to throw a hundred miles an hour and uh, you're going to be trying to win games for your team and get another world championship. And I just don't, I mean, unless he's a hundred percent healthy, I just don't see why or how they could make that happen. Excellent. The next question is from Melba. You can find her at underscore CC Hooks host mom. And her initial question was, do you think the Astros will continue paying their minor league players housing in the future? But if you don't know her story, she's a host mom, uh, you know, a host family there in Corpus Christi. She housed Anoli and Jordan. And I don't know if y'all have any stories of, you know, y'all's experience in the minors with any, any type of host family. Um, I'll take this one real quick. I don't know enough about the minor league system as it's come back, but I know the, that you know Jim Crane has really stepped up and taking care of these guys and paying for some of that housing and trying to offset, you know, not working a full year last year and and paying some of these guys. I I had a host I had a host mom. I didn't have a host mom. I had like a host family because 
I literally in AAA, and keep in mind, this is AAA, you know, the money was not good. Uh, I was trying to get by and I found a, a basement in Ottawa, Canada that I lived in. And literally the day I got called up, I was in the basement of that uh, house of the host family living with a French student uh, who was going to University of Ottawa. So uh, yeah, host families are, are key a key people in the life of a minor leaguer, because if you're trying to offset cost, you know, those host families do step up and do a wonderful job. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for those families or those people who actually take in some of these minor league ball players. And it sounds like CeCe Hook's, uh, you know, host mom has got a pretty strong track record of, of, of housing major league baseball players. So if I'm a younger guy moving into Corpus Christi, I might be giving her a call going, hey, you've got, uh, you know, your graduation rate into the big leagues is pretty strong. I would stick with that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I have such fond memories. I had my first year in Carlson, West Virginia. Our host families had a picnic at the end of the year. They put together a photo album. It just really felt uh, like they were making you part of their family. You feel comfortable and not so far from home. And I will say, though, coming out of college, I didn't live in a host family. You said you're in AAA at the time and, you know, doing different things. But there were still host families assigned to you that would check in with you, follow up with you after the game, maybe take you out to dinner, see if everything was all right. So even if you're not actually living in their residence, there are always people there that are interested in, you know, making you the best version of you. And I think it's a really special, um, it's really special families that are able to do that for us. And, you know, you mentioned already how many played in the big leagues. I mean, I played you know, nine years in the minor leagues and family in five or six of those cities. And it was valuable. And thanks for all you do. And uh, yeah. This question is from Daniel Barron and Blummer. I know that you've talked about this when you used to visit Chicago and you were talking about the groundskeeper. Uh, Daniel's specific question was, what was your favorite memory of Willie, the groundskeeper? That's a good question. So there's actually two guys in, uh, in Houston. Willie, who's been around you know, since the dome days. And then there's another guy named Melvin. And I, I had interaction with Willie. Willie has always been one of the dudes. I remember more of the conversations that I've had, you know, back up in the tunnel because the players parking lot passed, you know, by the groundskeeper area as you walk through the tunnel to get to the clubhouse. So I've always had a great relationship with Willie, uh, you know, when he's setting up the cage and when he's driving the truck around, you know, just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze with him a little bit. If you make a great play, you'd be like, man, Willie, you know, you, I couldn't have done that without you kind of thing because he kept the surface at Minute Maid Park in such great shape. But some of the most fun for me was uh, Melvin was one of the guys that would go out and change the bases and in the middle of the game. So there'd be, you know, the third, I think it was a third and sixth inning, and they would actually come out and trade out the bases and drag the field. And every time I would come running to the middle of the field and throw my ground balls to first base, and uh, Willie would come by. And, you know, it first started out just kind of like a fist pump, and then it was a high five. And uh, eventually it kind of turned into Melvin would stop and he'd sit there and talk to me and be like, man, that was a tough pitch he struck out on last time. <laughs> you know, we'd, we'd break down at bats. We'd break down part of the game. Uh, he'd come out in the sixth inning, you know, in a tie ball game. He's like, ooh, man, this is stressful. And I'm going, man, you try standing here one time, you know? So it was a lot of fun to have those conversations. And my experience with groundkeepers across the league you talked about Chicago. The guy had a nickname that he was called the Sod Father because you know he he had this special mix of dirt. And these guys are truly uh, passionate about what they do, and they're just great blue collar grinders who absolutely take the utmost pride in what they do to those fields. 
And, uh, you know, part of the, part of the fun of making it to the major leagues was playing in some of these pristine, you know, cathedrals of baseball and knowing that every time I went on the field, it would be the perfect hop and it would be the perfect cut of grass. And it was just so much fun to go out there. But those guys, I don't believe you, we talked about unsung, like Tuttle was talking about with uh, host families, the unsung heroes are a lot of those groundskeepers who are keeping that grass looking good and keeping that field in shape for those guys to go out there and play the best they can, because that is truly a ton of work. And uh, one thing you don't know about what Willie and Melvin and these guys do in Houston is, is when they're out, when the team is out of town and they open that roof up in the middle of summer to get the sun on that grass at Minute Maid Park, those guys are out there working in the dead of summer, sweating their brains out, making sure that field's in great shape. So a lot of credit to the groundskeepers out there. We salute you. Some of the best conversations. I mean, maybe it's because, as you said, Blummer, being around the field, like you end up talking about your profession so much that you can just, you know, uh, you could just grind it out. Having a hitting conversation with a guy who, you know, holds a rake and takes care of the field for a living can be pretty cathartic. Like, oh, yeah, this is what that at bat was about. And he's tied to it, but he's not tied to it in the same way you are. And so it's almost like an outlet. Like, hey, can I come sit in your chair for a minute? And I remember all the groundskeepers coming up and uh, host moms, whether you want to get into broadcasting or groundskeepers. I mean, I think what we're talking about here is passion. If you got passion for your profession, you can make good things happen. And uh, it's really good to... It's almost like a walk down memory lane thinking about my uh, all the groundskeepers I met and all the host families I had. So awesome. Mark, thanks for bringing those questions. Uh, one quick follow-up. Have y'all seen almost like the reverse effect of the groundskeepers put an advantage to the home team? Oh, yeah. You know, where, where you get like a Ricky Henderson, so they, they water it down a little bit more. Or, you know, have, have y'all seen some of that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I, I've seen it plenty. Dave Roberts was on our team in San Diego. So there'd be a little bit of a, you know, the, there'd be a tilt on the third baseline because he liked to bunt a little bit. So there'd be a little bit of a tilt where maybe if that ball was rolling on the foul line down the third baseline, it would come back fair a little bit. Uh, you know, in Chicago, I believe it was Chicago. They had some Chicago or Colorado. There were a couple of places where the grass was a little bit thicker because they had some older guys playing on the infield. So they wanted to cut down on the, the how fast the baseball was moving through the infield. Um, Greg Maddox was a guy when you went and played in Atlanta uh, on days he would pitch. It looked like an abs. It looked like quicksand or a quagmire right in front of home plate because he got so many sinkers and so many ground balls that when you hit it, no matter how hard you hit it, it would just die in this mud. And then just come rolling out of there for an easy ground ball to be uh, be made on that. Uh, there were times, I can't remember, it was either New York or Baltimore, but they would actually water the infield. And the reason they water the infield so much is to create good hops and soften up the field. But they would put down a mat at about 10 feet off the first base in the baseline. And then they'd water over it. And then they'd take the mat off. So there was a dry spot where the takeoff, like the launch pad for a guy who wants to steal bases at first base... <laughs> So instead of it being sticky and muddy and soft, it was dry, hard, and made it a better you know, launching pad for the guy running bases. That's kind of the, the ways that I saw them alter the field a little bit to be a little more conducive to the guy pitching or running or bunting at home. I'm not trying to get any groundskeepers in trouble here. <laughs> No, that's that's just the nature of the beast. You know, it's a, it's a manipulation of the playing surface to to help your ball club go out there and win. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus either, but it's just, it's just some those, those simple things that you can kind of manipulate a little bit to uh, give your team a, just a little bit of an advantage. And it, you know, the other team had to play in that same situation too. If you were pitching, you still had that soft spot out in front of home plate that would deaden a lot of ground balls 
that you normally would get. I want to you know say thank you to Mark for getting those questions, putting them together. Those are great. So make sure you go to Twitter or you go to bleacherblums.com and email us on our mailbag and let us know if you have any questions or topics you want us to hit on this podcast. We always appreciate the input. Again, you can reach Tuttle at Real David Tuttle on Twitter and Instagram. Myself at Blummer27 on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, at the end of every Bleacher Blums podcast, we'd like to give a shout out to all of the military home and abroad who are keeping our borders and our families safe here at home and giving us the freedom to go out here and have fun on this podcast and talk a little bit about sports and life. But we couldn't do it without you. All of the first responders, EMTs, police, fire that go out running into harm's way to protect us here at home. And of course, during all of this COVID pandemic madness, the frontline doctors and nurses and all of the healthcare workers out there who are doing their due diligence to make sure that we are continuing to be safe and opening things up and getting back to normal like they are in California for outdoor events. Very exciting stuff. But Tuttle, that is going to do it for me. I want you to go ahead and finish this bad boy up. Again, we always encourage you on the Bleacher Bums podcast to get after it and believe it.